everyone. You're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at EudaimoniaPod. In this episode, titled Thomas Mann on Love and Death in Venice, I speak with my colleague Agnes Mueller about Thomas Mann's great novella and what it has to teach us about eros, death, and beauty. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 29 of Sacred and Profane Love. This morning, I am joined by my colleague here at the University of South Carolina, Professor Agnes Mueller. Agnes is a professor of German and comparative literature, and she is a College of Arts and Sciences Distinguished Professor of the Humanities. She is also director of our program and global studies. Welcome to the podcast, Agnes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. The idea for this episode kind of came out of an email blast that I received. Maybe it was from our dean, I can't remember, but just about special courses being taught this semester in light of our plague and our circumstances. And one of those courses is a class that you just finished teaching, which I think was called Literature and and Pandemics. What was it called? Yeah, it's actually called um, Pandemics in Literature. What I try to do in the class is give an overview of um, pandemics as they appear in literature, because obviously it's very topical. Um, I got a lot of excellent student interest. I also got some really good students who helped me think along those lines. And to tell you the truth, I really became interested because of COVID. So if it hadn't been for COVID, I probably would not have taught this class. I was lucky to be able to put it on the books, you know, in the last minute in March. And everyone thought that it was a great idea and it worked really great. And I think part of the reason why it was so rich was because we started really with Boccaccio. So we started with the first play of the, you know, modern world. Um, And we ended with a novel that just was published in 2020, actually. Um, So we had the whole historical span of the pandemics and um, Death in Venice was sort of a centerpiece. And so Thomas Mann is very interesting to me because he is so contextual. He's both someone who provides context and someone who also received a lot of context from European modernism at the time. So he's just an incredibly versatile and uh, well-connected and easily contextualizable author. Um, and so that's really why I love talking about Thomas Mann because he's considered one of the great German authors and as such canonical. And when I first started studying, I had actually more of a visceral reaction against that because I thought we shouldn't just study, you know, Goethe and Thomas Mann when we're German studies scholars. But as it turns out, you know, with time and maturity came the insight that actually, yes, they are worth studying. So um, as I will tell my students anytime. I do want to say though, that while Death in Venice is very much about 
the cholera pandemic and picks up on a lot of historical details from the 19th century cholera pandemics that we know about, um, it is not only about that. So um, the cholera pandemic is an important aspect and one that I think has been neglected in the literature, but not the only aspect um, to talk about in this text. And I mean, we found that true for a lot of the plague texts that we chose. So um, I think that's you know, generally the case with great literature is that you can approach it from many different angles. I mean, whenever I think about what we want to learn from literature or what I wish my students learned from literature, I want everyone to learn more about the human condition, which writ large, right? And so the human condition. Yeah. Is I taught literature and philosophy, and one of the main questions that we were asking in the class is, what is the relationship between literature and philosophy? Like, how are they different? So, so there's this question of what's the difference between literature and philosophy? But then, of course, we read a lot of novel of ideas. And so there's a question about their interaction. And plus, we read philosophers like Plato, where the difference between literature and philosophy is really obscured. Platonic dialogue is also a, a work of literary art. It has a form. The form and the content have a really important interconnected structure. It's not just an argument. So when I was preparing for this podcast and reading Death in Venice, I was like, oh, why didn't I teach this? It's so <laughs> perfect for my class. Yeah. It's definitely going into the next iteration because this novella, you know, also I think it's it's a it's a novella of ideas. Um, it's an engagement with philosophical ideas. It's engaged I, I think it's an engagement also with some particular philosophers, Nietzsche and Plato. Absolutely. And in a sense, well, this is a question actually, but one of the things that I that I want to ask is whether or not it's giving us a, a philosophical vision. And if it is what that vision is. But before we get to the novella, um, I just want to invite you to just tell our listeners who maybe don't know who Thomas Mann was or what his literary influence has been, if you could just kind of give us the, the short version there. Yes, I'll do a very short version. <laughs> so Thomas Mann was, um, I would say, the second most important German writer in terms of the canon. Um, he wrote mostly um, the classical modernist works of Germany. And of course, modernism was a period in literary history that played out differently in um, England, in France, in America, and in Germany. And the Germans are always late with everything. Um, so <clears throat> Thomas Mann is a late modernist. And as a late modernist, he also picked up a lot of the forms that the other European and American Western neighbors had already established and sort of filled them in very um, complete ways. So there's, <clears throat> and that's why we have so much richness in his text is because he had basically all these models um, to draw on. So his most important works um, and the, the you know, I, I won't go into his biography too much. I know there's a lot of um, biographical parallels that people want to see between Thomas Mann and his main character in Death in Venice, um, Gustav von Aschenbach. I actually would contest this on many levels. I don't think it's um, so easy to just make that an autobiographical um, figure. But nevertheless, he was born uh, into a well-to-do well North German family um, 
think 1870s. I, I'm not good with numbers, so I don't know actually his birth date. Um, and he grew up in this, the, um, the latter bits of the 19th century. <laughs> yes. That's really all. Yeah. Um, yeah. He grew up, I, I think, 1870 something. But um, he grew up in this um, North German um, Protestant setting, but his mother was um, actually Argentinian and um, Jewish. And so that was unusual. Um, that's sort of the exotic influence in his life that's important. Um, his father's family was very traditional, very Prussian, and um, his youth and childhood was very regimented. Um, and you can see that in his works too. Um, and then he became sort of uh, prominent actually very early in life. He has siblings. One of his brothers also became a writer but was never as famous as Thomas. Um, his name is Heinrich. Um, he wrote, he was younger, and he wrote more um, sort of populist novels. They're actually quite interesting in terms of the time um, that they were written in. They give a very good image of the time, but they're not as artistic. Um, so Thomas was really the artist, and he was very well trained in music also. Um, his major work is probably um, Dr. Faustus, which he wrote later um, in the um, early 20th century, and which was also influenced by both world wars. Um, and then his other major work that um, especially German literary historians love because it um, he wrote it when he was still relatively young, and also it gives a good um, sort of overview of the time of the turn of the century is Buddenbrooks that was written in 1901. Um, Dr. Faustus, I think, was first published in 41. Um, and Mann had to go into exile uh, for many reasons. First of all, he was half Jewish. Secondly, he um, was an artist and he was considered an expressionist, although I don't think of his work as express expressionistic, but the Nazis in any case thought that it wasn't um, appropriate, obviously, to Nazi art. Um, and because he was well-connected <clears throat> and wealthy, he had a relatively easy time emigrating to America. And he lived in California. The Thomas Mann Villa is actually um, still in existence, which is the house he lived in. Um, <clears throat> and he died in the 1950s um, and was recently put up for sale. I don't know if anybody bought it, um, but there are enough Thomas Mann aficionados that somebody would buy it just because it was Thomas Mann's villa. So he was extremely well known. Um, he was extremely well connected in exile and he was successful as a writer throughout his life. Um, so, which is not the case for many modernists, obviously. Um, and he had had a, a very sort of positive reception um, pretty much from um, the beginning. Obviously, um, you know, we can see in Death in Venice that there was the crisis of modernism and the crisis of language, which um, was a pan-European thing, really, and it hit right around the outbreak of World War I. Um, and, um, but, but it was not a crisis that was um, significant to Thomas Mann's writing. I mean, he kept writing and he was extremely productive and prolific. Um, in spite of it or perhaps because of it. Um, and so for those people who are a little familiar with European modernism, there was the letter to Lord Chandos, which um, Hugo von Hofmannsthaler, an Austrian writer wrote, and that sort of articulated the general distrust in 
the possibilities of representational art to really depict what was going on in the world. Um, and that was partly motivated, I would say, by um, modernity, not modernism, but modernity as a um, concept that changed things for art um, and that made it not possible to just um, produce representational art in the way in which it had been produced in the 19th century. And so I think the realization of that um, was really what culminated in the Letter to Lord Chandos. That was published in 1902. And of course, Death in Venice was published in 1911, 1912, written in 1911, but published in 1912. So right on the brink um, of the outbreak of World War I. Um, and so a lot of things really came together at that time. You know, we have incredible innovation in technologies. I mean, we think that we've had a lot of innovation in technologies in our lives, but really the turn of the century saw so much innovation. If you think about not having electric light and then suddenly having electric light, if you think of not having cars and then having cars, if you think about, you know, um, like having the beginnings of telecommunication and um, being able to communicate with people who are physically remo removed. And all of those changes within really 20 years was incredible. Um, that was much more significant than our digital um, innovations that we experienced in our lifetimes, just to people's daily lives. Um, so people spent a lot more time reading all of a sudden. People had ways of reproducing that um, you know, new medium, but still new medium, which was the book, um, and delivering it to a lot of people. Um, and art became, you know, reproducible in ways that it had never been before because of photography. So painting was really altered in very big and uh, meaningful ways. Concerts, musical concerts became accessible to a lot more people. Um, and so all of those changes, um, I think, were incredibly significant to art and that's what precipitated the crisis, which we also see in death in Venice. Also for our listeners, when you say that Thomas Mann, you know, is a modernist and you say that, well, there's this concept of modernity that forces us to rethink our idea of representational art. I'm wondering what that means for literary art, right? Where it's not dealing with, with the visual right. uh, so much as it's, um, you know, dealing with, with language and words. And I just wanted you to say a little bit more mm -hmm. about what makes him a, a modernist as a literary artist. Yeah, what you had in, in up to the 19th century was a concept of realism where the um, ways of literary representation, and this is true for all the literary forms, poetry and uh, narratives and um, anything on stage, which is generally referred to as theater or drama, um, all of that still had the um, goal of representing the outside world in some fashion that was um, unbroken. Um, with the advent of photography and of all these new technologies, and I know they don't seem new to us today, but they were new at the time, um, came a realization that that unbrokenness was no longer true. It was not true in the outside world and therefore could not be true in the representation. And that led to what we then saw in so much of modern writing. I mean, you, we saw it in poetry, if you think about um, 
are the even the American um, modernists. You see it already in Whitman, even though um, you don't have the same um, brokenness um, at first glance, but he basically takes a form of poetry and makes a long verse, right, which was unthinkable before. Um, the French did it differently because they're French, so they still had short verses, but they were broken up and suddenly we had themes in poetry that we didn't have before. Instead of nature, we had death and we had decay and we had um, addiction and we had all of those ugly topics, um, which were not really the theme so overtly of art before. So we had those brokenness of the world that made its way into literary representation and also form. Um, so the form of the novel and of the novel that really sought in, in 19th century realism to depict nature one-to-one -one suddenly became a very short, shortened, and sometimes also broken up form. Um, in some cases, and that's where Thomas Mann is different from, for example, the Expressionists who were really radical and who really wanted to break up everything and where you basically ended up with fragments of narratives. Thomas Mann did not do that. He's still a traditionalist in that sense. And he writes something that has a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, and that is very composed. And that is also very music-like. Um, I already said he was trained in music and you can see that in all of his writing. Um, so he, he retains the form um, of, I would say, the classical arch, right? You have um, the exposition and, you, I mean, in Death in Venice, it's extremely visible. It's, this, it's somewhat visible in some of his um, longer narratives. Um, and then you have sort of the culmination at the end. I mean, the fifth chapter of Death in Venice is really a classical um, culmination. So in Thomas Mann, you have the form that is still there, but then you have the brokenness, you have the broken characters, you have the man that is ridiculous, you have um, the clothing that is ridiculous, you have the um, comedian that um, only can produce popular tunes that are so popular that they are almost disgusting and grotesque. Um, so all of those elements were not really part of literature before, but now they became an important integral part of literature because they helped us see the world as it was and see the world in all of its broken ugliness. And that's really the new thing um, of modernism. And that's what high modernism does, partly in symbolism, but partly also just by using those forms from the 19th century and before and turning the representational value into something different and something broken and on purpose broken. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because um, I just did a podcast episode on another modernist novella, uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Mm -hmm. And it, it was kind of striking to me just thinking about them in comparison because Conrad is doing some really interesting stuff with narrative, mm -hmm. for example, in Heart of Darkness. And Thomas Mann does seem, you, you know, more more traditional in mm -hmm. comparison. It's sort of oh, like yeah. it's okay. So at the core of it, Death in Venice is the story of an old, disgusting, creepy man who pursues a young boy and never even so much as gets a conversation in. That's it. That's the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The question is, why do we read <laughs> this? Right. I mean. 
Yeah. It's really creepy. And the way in which he follows Tacho around Venice is terrible and is not at yeah. all beautiful. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to talk about that because, look, the plot's really simple. There's a writer, Eschen, Gustav Aschenbach. Is it Aschenbach? Aschenbach? Aschenbach. Anyway. Aschenbach. It's Aschenbach. also Gustav right. von Aschenbach as he was um, then made. This is important because Germans are obsessed with the aristocracy still to this day. And they certainly at the turn of the century. And so the fact that he had to basically earn his nobility but wasn't born into it um, is a very important class distinction. So he's not actually of higher class, but through his diligent work, he kind of earns that status. Yeah, so he's like a quintessential bourgeois striver. Exactly, right? yes. You know, through hard yes. work and dedication, mm -hmm. I'm like really important, you know, and it, and it's super important to me. But, but I mean, in terms of plot, it's pretty straightforward. You have a writer and he's in Munich and he um, is just kind of struck one day with a kind of wanderlust. This is foreshadowing. The entire scene where in Munich he meets this strange man who basically um, inspires him on his exotic um, quest is a foreshadowing of the entire story because the man that he meets in Munich already has the features of death. If you uh, look at the description closely, you can see that his teeth and his face and his nose and his entire appearance is already foreshadowing death. And he then um, has this sort of daydream about an exotic landscape. The exotic landscape is not at all Italy. It is not Venice. It is India. Um, there's a tiger, there's bamboo. Um, it's very sexualized. There are the bamboo shafts that sort of spring out of the earth. So it's a very um, accurate and, and in a nutshell, um, depiction of what's to come. And of course, why is it India? Well, because we all know that the cholera comes from India, right? Um, so right. we already have in a, in a very, very small and very um, short description, the whole thing. Like it's already there. We don't even have to read the rest. Um, I mean, yeah. we do because, you know, we need to also find out about the homoeroticism and all the other aspects of the story. But um, in terms of what happens to Aschenbach and the ridiculousness of his bourgeois existence in the face of this exotic, tantalizing other is already here in the first chapter and on those few pages. Yes, I agree with that. And also, doesn't he meet this guy in a, in a cemetery? Near, isn't near, he like yes. in a church cemetery? Yeah. So actually, all along the way, he encounters... All of his encounters with other people, I think, end up, you know, being having this rich significance. Um, and in and in two cases, it is foreshadowing. Um, but but I just meant in terms of straightforward plot, like it's like it's pretty basic. So he's he's in Munich. He gets the Spanderlust. He wants to leave. Um, he goes. I can't remember. He, he like goes to, to like the Italian coast or something first yeah. and it's not really. No, a thing. he goes to. Yeah, this is actually also important. He actually first goes to what is what became known as Yugoslavia. Um, it's now Croatia. So he goes to the opposite, basically shore of the Adriatic. So if you think of the Adriatic, okay. it's like the 
of that yeah. side. Yeah. yeah. And then he goes to Italy. Yeah. So Italy is an important theme yeah. in the German imagination. Italy is the eternal south to Germans. So um, when Germans think of going on vacation to the south, they can only ever think of Italy. I mean, I'm overplaying this, but this, this has been true for a long time. It's also been true in the 1950s. Like they actually built super ugly, horrible tourist traps in Italy because, um, you know, that was the South. So it's, it's a cliche. Um, and to some extent, it also had already been a cliche because Goethe already wrote about Italy um, in his work. So Thomas Mann picks up on, on a theme here, you know, and, and it's interesting that he doesn't just go to Italy. No, he goes to the other place first to kind of, you know, make us think that he's not going to Italy. No, he's going to Italy. <laughs> so, sorry, go yeah, ahead. For me, so he, no, no, it's good. It's good. I love it. Um, yeah, so he, he goes to, I guess it's Croatia. I mean, he just is like, oh, but I can't really commune with the sea here. It's not working out. So he decides to go to Venice and he, he gets there. Uh, he gets there by boat and he stays in this nice hotel by the sea and um, he encounters this young boy, Tazio, or is it Tazio or Tazio? Tazio. I mean, so the pronunciation. Tazio. Yeah, because he's Polish. So the address, like if you address him directly, you would say Tazio with the U sound, which Tadju. also is a big deal, like in his dream later on. Um, but the name is Tazio. So. So which should I call him? Tazio, because you're not actually addressing <laughs> him. Tazio. Yes. Okay. Okay. Tajo. Yeah. So he meets this um, beautiful young Polish adolescent. You know, he's probably like 14. He's 14. Yes. He decides at some point he should leave Venice because, you know, there, there's rumors of a sickness. But as he's getting ready to leave, he can't do it. He's, he's, he's too taken away with Tajo and he goes back. And eventually he eats some bad strawberries and, and he dies. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. That's like, that is totally. That's the plot. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> right? It's, I mean, you made it sound even longer and more complicated than it really is. <laughs> because in terms of plot, that's all. That's what we got. By the way, the 14-year-old boy, Lolita, was also 14. Initially, but you know that's an important intertextual reference that has nothing to do with pandemics, but um, it's a very important reference because it highlights the creepiness of the pursuit of Aschenbach. So let's talk about Aschenbach. I mean, because I'm not okay. He's a little bit creepy. I would say, like, I get it, but I'm not sure how. It's so depending on how creepy we think he is, I think determines how we read the end of the novella. That's true. So the question of the extent of his creepiness is interesting to me. Um, and one reason why maybe he seems less creepy to me is that in my head, of course, I'm comparing him to Humbert Humbert, who is the pervert of Lolita and the book has great, great novel, uh, which, I, which I've also done an episode on which was really fun. Now, Humbert is an obvious pervert. Yes. And, and, and Humbert knows he's a pervert. Right. He's yeah, yeah, not yeah. No, that's no, and it, he doesn't even really think, clear to him. Yeah, and he doesn't have the same ideas about love and, you know, and also selfless love. So the question really is, 
yeah. selfless love here. And 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 that's not in Humbert. <laughs> so that's the difference. Yeah. Humbert is, he's obsessed with sex, right? right? I mean, and that, and, and everything that he's doing with uh, poor Dolores is aimed at having sex with her right. repeatedly, right? Like he can't let go of it, at least for the time that she's still a Lolita. And that kind of lust, right? It's very obviously lust in, uh, for Humbert, Humbert, it's, it's it's different with Eschenbach. So the similarities are Humbert, Humbert is also very into literature. He's not this successful artist that Eschenbach is, right? He's he's basically like an adjunct professor, <laughs> Humbert, Humbert, or, or something like this. This isn't, this isn't a person of, of great literary no, fame or even academic fame. He does have um, certain a certain literary background, certain literary aspirations, um, even though they go unfulfilled. So in that sense, they're similar. And of course, there's there's the there's the pederasty. Now, for Humbert Humbert, it's, it's heterosexual. And yeah. for uh, Aschenbach, it's obviously homoerotic. But I think the nature of, of what's going on with Aschenbach and the relationship of what's going on to his obsession and his art is quite different. Yes. If it's perverted, it's not perverted in, a, in precisely the same no, way. No, absolutely. And if it's wrong, it's not wrong in precisely the same way. So let's just talk about Aschenbach. So I said, you know, he's kind of this this bourgeois striver. You mentioned that he he he's like, he's like a knight, but he had to work for it. <laughs> you know, like he's, well, um, he's a, he's an aristocrat, but he's not an aristocrat by birth, and that really matters. I mean, to the European context, you know, if you read this text in America, it's like, what do we care about aristocracy? But Europeans care deeply um, because it's a class distinction. And class in Europe is all about education and not about money only. I mean, money comes with it. And obviously money was important. Material wealth was important to the aristocracy, but it's not, it's still, um, a, a class that distinguishes itself by being educated. Um, and so that's why the fact that Aschenbach had to work for it is important because it means that his diligence and his um, perseverance and all kinds of good character qualities made him that, right? Um, so that already makes him morally better than let's say someone who's born with a silver spoon, which by the way, Tachu seems to be. We don't know all that much about him, but we know that he has this mother who seems to be aristocratic. So um, that's also part of the longing. You know, it's the longing for the naturally born aristocrat as opposed to the having to work hard to earn it kind of aristocrat. I mean, that's a subtext that's very subtle, that's not on the surface. Um, in terms of Aschenbach's character, I would say that, yes, of course, he's not just a creep. It's just so easy to read him that way. He also invites that because, um, and that's the brilliance of Thomas Mann's writing, because even though we see the entire novella only from his perspective, he is self-critical all the time. And he has, he says things like, you know, to the forlorn man or to the lonely man or to the lonesome traveler. So he constantly puts these critical distancing devices into his own sort of inner monologue, which isn't really an inner monologue either, um, that make us, that alert us to the fact that he's self-critical and that alert us to the fact that he kind of seems to know what's going on with him 
yet he also doesn't, right? Because then the authorial voice comes back and says, oh, but he's going to um, stay in Venice even though he knows that it's cholera stricken. Oh, he has the chance to warn Tajo and his family of what he knows about the fact that the city is cholera stricken, but he is too far gone, so he doesn't, right? Um, so there's the authorial voice and then there's also the internal Aschenbach voice. And the two are not always aligning, even though they seem to align. That's really the artistry of, of Thomas Mann's writing. And I don't, I mean, the, the other texts that he wrote, the other narratives are fantastic, but they're not as intricate in terms of the um, perspective that we are being led around with, so to speak. Um, so he's actually a very ambivalent and complex character, um, partly because of his self-reflection and also because um, it's interesting that we, we, we learn so much about his deprivation, right? Um, so the deprivation makes us morally more inclined to be lenient on him, right? So we know that he's worked so hard for all of his life and he's achieved so much fame, he's so lonely. And so we feel like he kind of deserves this crazy love, even though um, we also know that it's creepy and wrong and weird, and he knows that it's creepy and wrong and weird, but we think like, yeah, this poor guy, I mean, he's worked so hard and, you know, it's okay. Like he can let himself go. Um, so there's, there's, there's this thing built in that I think um, lets us, um, off the moral hook a little bit and lets us think that that he's actually fine. Um, the other thing that distinguishes this text from Lolita is that it's real love, it's true love. It's not merely erotic, right? I mean, Eros, of course, plays a big role and he also says that several times, but it's nevertheless clear that it is a love that's also giving and that is, um, you know, interested in the beloved as uh, not just an object, even though it's very clearly in the first place seen as an object, but it's not just that. Like he wants Tajo to have his life. He wants to leave him alone. Um, he's holding himself back all the time. He's reflecting on the fact that he doesn't want to be seen. And there are two reasons why he doesn't want to be seen. Number one, because he is ashamed and guilty of his um, creepiness. But he also doesn't want to be seen because he worries what this might do to Taju. So there is concern, um, which, you know, Humboldt, for instance, doesn't have. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's erotic in the original platonic sense. I mean, if I wanted to assign <laughs> some literature that I thought, you know, really, this is like Plato's eros on display, it, it would be this because um, for, for so for so many reasons, but like if you if you think about Plato's conception of Eros that he develops principally in the Symposium and in the Phaedrus, which are like companion dialogues, you know he he says very clearly that Eros one is is a god or, or godlike, and that Eros always starts with beautiful bodies. Right, because that's like we're human. That's where things things start with us in the senses. Now, for Plato, the problem is if it remains there, 
And that's a problem for him with respect to knowledge, right? So we start in the cave and all we have is sense perception. And, but of course you've got to get out of the cave so you can see the sun and, and contemplate the forms. And then similarly, with respect to love, it starts with erotic attraction. It's, it starts out sensual. It starts out with erotic attraction to beautiful bodies. And for Plato, the icon of beauty is a, a, a pubescent boy, right? It, it is someone like Tacho. And, and this, this is clear in, in all, of, all of his writings on love. Um, it always starts out with an older man who becomes enamored. Uh, with a beautiful boy, where it's clear that a beautiful boy is someone who does not yet have a beard, <laughs> right? Who's not, and and that's exactly what's happening here. And but the thing is, for Plato, right? You start off with your admiration. You're 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 sort of struck by beauty, essentially. But it's it's the beginning. It has the potential in it to ascend to something much higher. Right, so, so Plato ultimately thinks that love, the object of love is something immortal, something divine. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about Eros for Plato is that it takes you out of the finite, the temporal, the everyday, right? It happens mm -hmm. in the finite and the temporal and the everyday, but ultimately it takes you out of that to something eternal, something fully real, you know, he says the purpose of love is immortality. It's to give birth to beauty in body, right, and in soul. And so for the, so to apply that to the artist, right, for Plato, although Plato obviously in the Republic has um, <clears throat> complicated views about the role of art and the artist, he thinks it can be quite dangerous. Well, as, as it is here, right, it is dangerous. Yes, so, yes. And that's another reason yeah. why I see this as completely in, in, in dialogue with Plato. Look, you know, once we ascend and we contemplate beauty itself and the good itself, which Plato thinks it requires, you know, virtue to do, then we come back and we try to reproduce it in others. And then for the artist, they they reproduce their vision, right, in, in their art. And this is a kind of immortality. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the, the giving birth to beauty in the body is, of course, you know, just literal reproduction. Right. Yeah. right? Like, yeah. and, and, also, and also the reproduction of virtue in another person. Right. right? Which we do as parents when we, when we try to raise our kids well. But, it, but that's not the highest or most interesting. It's really like, well, for Plato, it's really the philosopher who, who would be doing the most important stuff. But I think the artist, too, when it's going well you know, that's kind of the platonic vision. Yes, and that's, but that's, it's an ideal, right? Yes, it's, well, yeah, sure, it's plain. So that's the thing, and and this is not, I mean, this is not, right? So that's, I think, the difference. And of course, you know, he even quotes, I mean, it's totally in there, but I think it's in there also as a foil so that we understand Aschenbach as someone who's steeped in that and who still kind of believes it, but at the same time realizes its own limitations and ridiculousness. And it's interesting that it's sort of a comical yet deathly effect that it has. It's not art.
that he turns into. And it is not a dialogue. There is zero dialogue in this entire novella. Right. Never talk. So, um, so it's not art that comes of it. And it is not a dialogue that we can learn from. It is merely his own somewhat comical demise, right? Um, so, because, you know, he could have avoided his death and he could have gone back to Munich and wrote the next great book, except he didn't. So, the plot level, um, all we're left with is really the end of things. So that's, I would say, the difference between the idealism that we have in Plato and that, you know, engenders debate and that engenders beautiful and good things um, and that we are now encountering in modernism um, is sort of almost its opposite. And I would say the cholera is the perfect um, metaphor and vehicle for that. Not only because cholera and love, you know, illness and love and sickness and love or disease and love are so akin in so many ways, like they come out of nowhere, you don't know where they come from, you don't know why, you can't explain it with rationality. I mean, it is so compelling, mm -hmm. you know, as a motif. Um, yeah. And But not only because of that, but really much more importantly, because of where civilization is, right? At the beginning of the 20th century. Again, we're at the cusp of World War I. Um, and so that's what I think is the really interesting arch, if we want to draw the arch all the way, way back to Plato, is that we don't have those beautiful things anymore, even though we might still remember them. I mean, Aschenbach still remembers them, right? I mean, he talks about his, um, love for all things Greek all the time. And, you know, of course he drinks pomegranate juice because that's the reference um, to haters and that's what we are supposed to be reminded of. But the interesting thing is that it's kind of stilted. It's not genuine. Like, it's not like we're thrown into a world where that is our world that we can still hang on to and believe in. It's the world that we had and that he's still a proponent of and somehow tries to be a character in, but that that is not his surroundings anymore. When he's sitting there in Venice and he watches the comedian and then goes back to his hotel, there's nothing classical or beautiful or idealistic about that. It's the opposite. Um, and so that's why I think the novella also has five chapters, by the way, because it's kind of this drama, right? I mean, it's the classical arch of the five segments. Um, and the culmination of it is, so the tragedy of the, of the novella to me is not Aschenbach's death, because we knew that all along. I mean, we knew that already when we read about the encounter on the walk in Munich, we knew he was going to die. The tragedy really is that we no longer have those things. Like that's the deep sadness that we're left with. Not just that he lost Tajo and, you know, it actually didn't leave him because he was, Tajo was beckoning to him. And, you know, if we believe in an afterlife, we might believe that he actually meets him as soon as he's died and so on and so forth. So that's not the sadness of it. The sadness is that we no longer have everything that we had with Plato. Yeah, I mean, I um, was it something that I left out, but is actually really important, and I think also important to Thomas Mann in this novella is that this um, beauty for Plato and erotic love generally 
is supposed to transform a person, mm-hmm. right? So when when you really love, you're supposed to be transformed. Mm-hmm. And and the and the thing is, Aschenbach is transformed, right? right? No, that's true. But it's not. But but it's not clear. It's a good transformation. <laughs> In fact, it looks like he becomes what he's most disgusted right. by at one point. Yeah. Right. So at one point, he's most disgusted by. I think he's. I think he's on the boat on the way to Venice, mm-hmm. and he meets this old man who's like trying to be young. Right. He's like yeah, posing he has, as a young man, and it re- it, yeah, and it really disgusts Aschenbach for some reason. But of course, his love for Tajo makes him into that man. Like there's this scene where he goes to the barber and he's like trying to get all pretty, but yeah, no, he does the same thing. So, so he sort of becomes um, this thing that disgusts him. And it seems like his obsession with this beautiful boy doesn't in fact lead him to the sort of transformation that Plato thinks that this love contains within it the possibility for Mm -hmm. and that you know but Plato himself and this is why I wonder how much of this is a rejection of Plato because Plato himself warns that we can get stuck right at the level of sensuality Mm -hmm. and this is really bad so in the symposium there's famously a character Alcibiades who's in love with Socrates and Alcibiades the symposium is like a, you know, it's a drinking party and people are giving speeches in praise of love. Phaedrus uh, is someone who gives a speech. Mm-hmm. But Alcibiades bursts in after Socrates' great recounting of the speech of Diotima and he's totally drunk, <laughs> just completely wasted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's all upset because he's he's in love with Socrates and Socrates doesn't love him and Socrates makes him feel ashamed and, you know, has ruined his life and all this other stuff. So, so Alcibiades, well, speech or drunken tirade or however <laughs> we want to frame right. it, is sort of like for Plato, you know, the darker side of all of right. this, namely that there contains within this possibility of this ascent also a fall, right? Where instead of really enjoying and possessing the good and reproducing in other people, what we experience is shame mm-hmm. and humiliation. And we and the thing that we don't want is we don't want our lover to see us that way. Right. right? We don't like we're so ashamed of not being good, of not being transformed in the right way, right? That that we want to hide. We don't because we always want our lover to see us as good, right? As and why? Because if we're not good, they won't want us. Right. No, I know. Right. We won't. We won't be their beloved. Yeah. And so, so yeah, it's like Aschenbach becomes sort sort of absurd. Yeah, at the end. Totally. And it and it's not going well. But there are two possibilities there, right? That is to say, it, so he could be trying to show that look, like this Plato stuff, it's hopeless. <laughs> Or he could be trying to say it's correct, <laughs> namely that if you get stuck, if this frenzy, this mania, this rapture, right, doesn't actually help you ascend, but like you just becomes an obsession with somebody's beautiful body, it goes really badly. The acknowledgement of the fact that we no longer have those ideals is wrapped in there because it's wrapped into modernism, it's wrapped yeah. into Nietzsche. 
And the binary between the Apollonian, Apollonian and the Dionysian, I think, is very, very obvious. I mean, uh, there's a lot yeah. of scholarship on the connection between Thomas Mann and Nietzsche. Um, it's probably more prominent in one of his longer, um, in fact, in Dr. Faustus, it's the most prominent, um, that there are these forces, right? You have the light and the darkness, and you have enlightenment and romanticism, and so on and so forth. So it's almost too much the way in which the binaries are set up. And of course, um, in that sense, love can both be uplifting, beautiful, and engender all the good things that we know about, as well as drag you down and you know um, cause destruction and ultimately death. But in terms of the sort of um, lasting themes, um, I think we're still today struck by um, the question of, you know, what can we have as ideals? What are we striving to be? Um, what is our civilization trying to um, promote? What kinds of values um, do we have? And how do we express those values? And can we express them meaningfully? And I think the question, those questions are all wrapped in this text in, in very dense and, um, but also very profound and compelling ways, because it seems like a very simplistic love story and the plot seems extremely simple, but there is so much in there and there are so many unsolved questions that you know we can't say for sure whether Aschenbach is good or bad, um, whether he's really virtuous or not. We don't know. I mean, he is and he's not. Um, and depending on how you measure him, he is and he's not. And that's what makes him fascinating. Yeah. I think he's such a fascinating character. I think he's complicated. I don't, I mean, I get why you say like he's creepy, but I don't think he's any creepier than like really all of us on, on some level. <laughs> right. I mean, no, I so mean, that, that but that's what say, love is. I mean, that's also what you have in love in the time of color. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the thing that I love about, there's so much that I love about this. And one thing that <clears throat> I just want to say, um, mostly for our listeners is it really reminds me of, of Donna Tartt's A Secret History, mm -hmm. the more that I think about it. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. read that, but it's it's the same. It's it's so so many similar themes. Um, and you should definitely read Donna Tartt's A Secret History, and then we'll like have coffee and talk about it. <laughs> okay. It'll be amazing. It's completely amazing. <laughs> you must read it now. Because um, there's no you, other books. You'll love it. <laughs> but anyway, the, the thing that is so compelling to me about this just to go back to what you said at the beginning about, you know, great literature really showing us so much about ourselves, about human nature, is that he picks up on real permanent aspects of love as, as we experience erotic love. And, and part of it is that love makes us crazy. It makes us sick, right? So mm -hmm. the kind of love sickness, which by the way, is also in the Phaedrus, you mm -hmm. know, Lysias' speech right. before, uh, before Socrates' great speech about love and the Phaedrus, he's like, look, love is dangerous because it makes you sick in the sense that it overwhelms your reason. It makes you crazy. It makes you stupid. And the thing is, that's true. It does do this. And Socrates doesn't deny it. He's like, yeah, man, that really, it definitely happens. Mm -hmm. But this, and this is, you know, the Phaedrus, unlike the symposium, is really about, um, mania mm -hmm. or frenzy yeah. or yes. enthusiasm. Right. 
um, what what Plato calls being filled with the God, mm -hmm. being possessed by something divine. You know, this is how he thinks about love. Um, one, it's something that just strikes you, whether you're ready for it and it just hits you. Mm -hmm. And it hits you in the first way, centrally, mm -hmm. visually. You know, it's, it's all about the eyes and vision. Well, and that's what we have here when Aschenbach first sees Tajo, right? I mean, that's exactly the point. Like, it's what we call love at first sight, and we can debate whether love at first sight is a thing or not, but it's a thing here, for sure. Well, I mean, I don't know. A lot of people experience it. It makes you silly. <laughs> I mean, frankly, it makes you silly, and then it makes you stupid. But it's this kind of you know, frenzy, this rapture, you cannot get this person out of your head, right? Mm -hmm. you, there's no, uh, there's no possibility of that. They're there. You, you just find yourself drawn and you don't necessarily have a reason other than that. You honestly want to look at this person. Well, the reason that we have, yeah, well, the reason that we have in the text and the reason that we generally also ascribe is of course, beauty, right? And so, then we get to the next really difficult question. I wanted to actually ask you whether in your class you ever solved the question of the difference between literature and philosophy, because I have been <laughs> teaching literature for like, what, 25 years? And I have tried to define yeah. what is literature since I first taught it, and I have yet to come up with a definition. <laughs> so um, the same yeah. is true for beauty, right? And some people say platitudes it's like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which is complete BS, because we, of course, all know that we ascribe to abstract um, ideas of what beauty is. And they haven't changed that much. I mean, they have changed somewhat. But um, if you look at paintings throughout history, they haven't changed all that much. So um, we have a pretty good sense visually of what beauty is. And Aschenbach has a very clear sense when he first sees Taj that the reason why he falls in love with him is because he's beautiful. That's it. No. Yes, and he, he's not and smart. He, he's not, you know, he's not rich. Or if he is, it doesn't matter to him. Um, he's beautiful. Period. That's yes. Yes, and he has a beautiful body. Yes, right. Yeah, I yeah. mean, he's he's he he is explicitly compared to very famous Greek sculptures mm -hmm. right? and God. Yes, and mm -hmm. and godlike, and of course. Yeah. And because, of course, for, for the Greeks, you know, Eros is is a mm -hmm. god. Um, or, or, you know, or Plato says he's a god or he's godlike. There's something divine about beauty. And for Plato, ultimately, you know, that's a picture about the fact that the form of beauty is something that is eternal and unchanging and most real, uh, un unlike us and everything here which comes into being and changes and, and dies right. but no i'm I, I hate to tell you that i have not uh solved this if i do <laughs> i'll be very famous so maybe that'll happen someday the thing about aschenbach that is so i actually find him really endearing in a lot of ways is that he is overcome with this mania this frenzy this rapture whatever you want to call it you know, here's a guy who is so self-disciplined and so self-controlled and so dedicated. Like the first thing that we hear about him really is that he fears he will die mm -hmm. before he can accomplish his mission as an artist. He's so devoted to, to this and he thinks about it in terms of formal structure and, 
and he's sort of like, yeah, I mean, it's in, in terms of Nietzsche, he's like the Apollonian, right? The, the Apollonian artist. He's um, a master craftsman. He gets carried away in Venice. In some sense, he gets carried away by the city mm-hmm. itself, which is sort of described as voluptuous and passionate. And he's brought out of this space of work into a space of leisure and joy where he feels like he can just, he can just contemplate, right? right? Like he can just take it in. Yes, well that, but also, also, and I think, um, so I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here because I agree that this is all in him. But at the same time, the question is also, why Venice, right? So we have to ask ourselves, I mean, Italy is big and, you know, there are other places of the South. And he even goes through these mental gymnastics of he wants to go to an exotic place, but not too far away, blah, 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 blah. So he settles on Venice and it's complicated how he gets there. But of course, it's extremely meaningful that it is Venice. Um, But it's also sort of the exotic other, both the place and then boy and so the exotic other is something deeply colonialist and deeply troubling if we think about the fact that he wants to possess something he doesn't ultimately achieve that but he wants to possess something that is the other and that is exotic and dark and unknowable and unknown right so again if you think about this in terms of the history of germany which I have to because I'm a literary scholar and that's my job. (laughs) Um, So it's also a colonial fantasy that um, imagines that he can possess the exotic other. So it's, it's the draw is not just, I mean, yes, it's the beauty and antiquity and we can explain it with Plato, but it's also the fact that there's this boy who is kind of unknowable in terms of his origins. Yes, he's Polish, but we don't really care. He's also maybe Russian or there's a Russian governors. Like there's this mix of Slavic and things that are different from German. And then it's all set in the South. So the Germans were the one industrious Western nation that never managed to gain any significant colonies except for tiny chunks of Africa. Um, <clears throat> that have right. sort of <clears throat> carried this resentment about not having those lands, whereas the French had them, and of course the British had them, and even the Spanish had them, right? But the Germans never. Oh yeah. So, yeah, and and yeah. so that's I think wrapped in there as well in terms of the exoticization of both the place Venice, which is very often described in tropical terms, even though it's not the tropics, and then the boy, right? Um, so he's also described of having curls, and you know, yes, he's pale, meaning northern but also he's dark and his eyes are dark. So um, there's all of that wrapped in, and that is something that's not just Apollonian and Dionysian, which we can still explain with Nietzsche, but also just a historically, um, a historical moment perhaps of um, longing and desire that's you know mixed in with national pride. And that's actually something where I would almost say, um, On the one hand, I think we have all of those very important ideal, um, perhaps idealistic or ideal defying moments, but we also have a historical um, grounding that um, I think is fascinating that we have those dreams and desires 
and all of it wrapped in this one character who, um, you know, puts them on display for us to read and to see and to understand what it means for a nation to not have the things that everybody else has and how dirty that jealousy can become and how devastating once he actually, you know, Aschenbach follows his exotic longing. Like, don't, right? So, I mean, some people have also read this as foreshadowing into the two world wars and all the calamities of the 20th century, um, which, you know, we can. I mean, if we think about the fact that love and desire and the desire for the other in particular leads to all of these devastating and, you know, not just death, but really truly awful devastation. Um, so I think that's also wrapped in this character on some level. It's so rich what is going on here. And I think that it's really interesting to think about how, you know, because as we've been saying, like, like Plato has this very idealized vision of love, right? And, and he's very explicit that it's an ideal. And he's very explicit that it contains within it the potential for great things and also for really bad things. And I think that some of the things that you're picking up on are like all the bad things, <laughs> right? That can get swept up right. into any attempt, right? To have, you know, some kind of, this this kind of mania. Mm -hmm. Like, like what, what sense do we make of this love sickness? And what I find so interesting and compelling also in this novella is that, you know, he experiences this lovesickness and it, yeah, it makes him a little crazy and stupid and it makes him completely obsessed and it turns him into this comical figure. For me, it's sort of like, it definitely elicited like sympathy, mm -hmm. you know, oh, yeah, like, yeah. I, like I, I sort of, I felt for no, him totally. in a way and that he is supposed to feel more him. difficult for me to, yeah, well, I definitely did in a way that like Humbert Humbert, you know, doesn't get right. as much of my no. sympathy for, for like, and, and part of that is because, and this is something that I want to talk about, um, the nature of the lovesickness, um, which of course is so brilliant in the story because it leads to the decisions that end up, you know, end up, end up in Aschenbach's death, right? Because um, it's, it's his obsession with the boy right. that makes him stay in Venice when he knows he should right. leave and also makes him like put his guard down with respect to the cholera. And also like, he, as you mentioned earlier, he refuses to like, let go of the boy, you mm -hmm. know, and to tell his family, like, you need to get out of here. You know, it's a plague. And like 80% of people die from it. So the love sickness is what leads to, to the real sickness. And I think there's a lot there that's rich and complicated and worth exploring. But, you know, the the nature of his rapture or his obsession or his frenzy, it's not clear that Aschenbach is in any way trying to consummate this. It's right. not clear that he has any design. Now he does have, and we should talk about it, he has this crazy dream, which is basically a... Um, a Dionysian orgy, mm -hmm. That's exactly <laughs> um, what which, yeah. yeah, what's up with that? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the dream is just sort of um, all that he can't live, right? I mean, it's, it's that which he can't, and that's also what then leads to his actual demise. I mean, he has the dream and then he dies, basically. I mean, it's, it's, they're very close together. Um, I think 
Yes, I think we are supposed to feel sympathetic for Aschenbach. I think that's totally built into the, also the way that the narrative works. Um, so, and, and I think, by the way, we are also supposed to like Humboldt uh, in Lolita, but the difference there is the main emotion for Humboldt. Humboldt is really pity, especially once we understand what's going on with him. So he's simply deranged. Like we can, you know, explain that with psychological instability and blah, blah, blah. With Aschenbach, that's not so easy because we don't know enough about his psyche. We are supposed to see him as an artist and a um, creator of things. So <clears throat> it's not, we, we can't easily psychoanalyze him. You know, sometimes um, it's really made easy for us to psychoanalyze characters. And in the time of Freud, of course, I mean, Thomas Mann and Freud were actual um, companions and they saw each other and they talked with each other. So um, it would be extremely tempting to say, let's just put Aschenbach on the couch and see where we can get by doing a psychoanalysis. And people have done that, but we don't get very far because we simply don't know enough about him. So he is as a figure, um, I think meant to stand for a lot of things. And um, in order for us to find the ideas that he stands for or the things that we're supposed to engage with um, compelling, he needs to be likable, right? So he's constructed as this person that I think we can find endearing and that um, we can also understand and we can follow him in his falling in love trajectory very easily because it's slow and it progresses. And by the time he does the really creepy things of following Tatcha around all of Venice and hiding and also being ashamed of it, we think that this is completely understandable. And not because of our own experience necessarily, not because we all do this, right? We don't we all follow our love objects around in crazy ways, but because of the way, I mean, I hope, um, maybe we do, <laughs> but because of the way in which it's been set up um, and because such a slow progression. So this is actually something that we have to remind ourselves when we're at the end of this, that what he has done even if he doesn't pounce on him or jump on him or, you know, try to have sex with him or whatever, it is nevertheless very, very problematic and it is stalking to the nth degree. Um, and the governor seems to be somewhat aware because there's one reference about how they try to, you know, make sure that Taju keeps up with them and doesn't stay too far behind because they are slightly worried. So this is not at all normal behavior. You know, it just seems normal to us because we've been following him. And so it's it's okay. And so so this is an, an interesting game that the text plays with our minds, um, which good texts do because, you know, they are supposed to make us see things the way that we haven't seen them before. And so I think <clears throat> that's one of the main achievements. I mean, I said at the beginning that I think literature should tell us something about the human condition. This tells us so much about so many things um, because it, it gives us a historical insight into a time period, but it also tells us about unchangeable things such as love and death, right? What do we do when we become afraid of death? Um, how do we use that mania? But maybe it's more than mania. Maybe it's, you know, just simply the very understandable fear of we are old, we might die. In addition to that, we then 
you know, we, we are in denial of the disease that's right around us and things like that. So I think that it tells us about love, about death, about anxiety, about, um, you know, the difference between old age and young age, uh, so many things. The one thing that this text does not tell us, and that's also, <laughs> I think, telling and important, is we never get to see Taja's perspective. We have no, we right. have no idea whether he thinks this is enticing, erotic, exciting, he likes to be the love object of this old man, or he hates it. We don't know. We have no clue. Right. And so that's, I think, right. also really interesting to think about. Yeah. And it, it sort of ends, they have one final book, mm -hmm. right? So he's, he's out uh, in, the, in the sea and uh, he's like playing around, roughhousing, and he turns around mm -hmm. and they they have this, you know, they hold one another in their eyes. The question that we're left with um, is, so first of all, what did Tatcha think? And secondly, was it really a gaze that was mutual? Did Tatcha really look at him or did he just imagine this? Because the guy is crazy now right. by his own admission, you know? So he might have imagined the whole thing. He might never have gotten any return. <laughs> I don't know how to say that word in English. <laughs> he might never have gotten any return on his um, longing at all. That might just be in his imagination, just like his dreams. So that's an unknowable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a little bit ambiguous at the end, you know, sort of. I don't, I don't fully have a line on it myself, which is great. It means I have to keep thinking about it because, you know, one, one reading that I've seen is that, you know, Thomas Mann is answering Plato and he's rebuking him. He's saying, you know, this ideal that you have, it doesn't actually work. It's a farce. Right. I don't know if that's correct. I'm not super attracted to that reading myself, but I mean, I think there's something to it. I think that there's... I think that there's something important going on about the contrast between ideals and reality. And there is something comical. And this is why it reminds me of the Donna Tartt, which you definitely need to read. But, <laughs> but so I think there's something there. I don't want to say that there's nothing to this reading. I definitely think there's something there. But I'm just somehow left with this sense that, that Thomas Mann also thinks that there's something true about this. I guess I'm less interested in in seeing, or I'm less compelled by seeing the death as simply like a rebuke, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, of any yeah. number of yeah. things, right? It, it could be in any number of things. And just seeing it as um, bringing out a couple of interesting things about our main character, mm -hmm. Aschenbach, namely that his obsession was becoming a little bit darker mm -hmm. progressively. And we see this in the dream. You know, it is bringing out in him things that he himself finds disgusting. It is changing him, right? But not for the mm -hmm. better. And that there is this possibility in our experience of beauty, in our sensual experience of beauty. There is this possibility of of this bad kind of transformation and that doesn't negate right the fact that there is also this possibility of something better um but it's just to say that you know there's 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 something dangerous mm -hmm. in love yeah, for, 
And I don't think that that danger is limited to homoerotic love or even pederastic love. Maybe the dangers are easier to bring out in those kinds of like taboo kinds of love. Like it's easier for us to Mm -hmm. see it. Um, But it's there Mm -hmm. for all of us. Like, right? I mean, this possibility of a dark obsession is I totally, that is completely true. I think that this text says the truest things about love that exist in literature. Like, I really, I mean, like I said, the only thing that comes close is in this context for me, love in the time of cholera, because it's really similar in the way in which it describes love and it is cruel and horrific in some ways, but also very true. Um, And it's interesting to me that it also needs cholera as its theme or motive or figure against which it works sort of um, in both texts. So I totally agree that it is not the homoeroticism and it is not the pederasty that makes this you know, negative in any way, but it's the darkness of love itself, no matter what kind. And that it is also oscillating between erotic love and agape in some ways, right? I mean, he really likes the boy and he wants the boy to be in his element and not take him out of that. So the possession that I said earlier is also true. I mean, it's also there because we see it in the dream and he fantasizes that, but that's not all there is. And so that's the multifaceted and incredibly wide range of love that we see here in this very short text and in this basically non-existent plot. Thank you so much, Agnes, for joining us. Thank you. This was totally fun. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by William Dethridge. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or on the Apple ICM, and you can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at EudaimoniaPod, and we're also over on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy this podcast, you can now support us on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash EudaimoniaPod. As always, I'd like to thank our most recent patrons for their monthly support. So, special thanks goes to... Garth Greenwell, Mitchell Marks, Pete Davis, Ruben Dario, John Paul LaBeouf, Will Trumbull, Jeremy Tate, Katrin Kuyper, Torio Dyer, Maria Barras, and Ali Lombardo. For our next episode, I'll be joined by the writer Tara Isabella Burton to discuss Kierkegaard and Oscar Wilde. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. Mm-hmm.